The following podcast may contain explicit content, which is, I suspect, why many of you are tuning in in the first place. Hi, it's Mike Pesca, host of The Gist and host of Not Even Mad, which I hope you heard me talking about on Friday. That's our new panel discussion show. We'll be dropping every Wednesday by we, I mean, Virginia Heffernan and Jamie Kerchick. So this is the Saturday show. I bring you a best of the past week, a best of the past gists. And I was thinking about not even mad and what we're trying to do there and different people who might disagree or do disagree, but having it out. And one interview that I did a few years ago was with Heather Hendershot, and she wrote a book called Open to Debate, How William F. Buckley Put Liberal America on the Firing Line. To us, William F. Buckley is something of the ideal for this kind of uh, discussion and debate. I enjoyed my talk with Heather, so we'll be playing that today, Trial by Firing Line. But first, I had David Priest on the show to talk about the January 6th commission. We're not going to replay that interview. What we're going to do is play some of the really good Q&As that I had with the publisher of Lawfare about his thoughts on January 6th and things related that didn't make the final cut. This happens, you know, sometimes we talk for 30 minutes, I give you 20 minutes. So in this case, I will give you the extra 14 minutes. So enjoy first David Priest and then Heather Hendershot from January of 2017 about William F. Buckley. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I don't know if you read the Frank Four piece in The Atlantic, The Inevitable Indictment of Donald Trump, where he talks to and analyzes Merritt Garland. Did you check that out? I did. I did. Okay. And there's a whole lot yeah. of, yeah, there's a whole lot in there that I think is worth reading. 
Um, I can't independently evaluate all of it, but it's a reasonable argument. There, there's nothing in there that I think is is blatantly wrong. Um, it is important to remember that the attorney general is an odd duck. The attorney general, and I don't mean this one, I mean the position. The attorney general existed before the Justice Department did. At the beginning of the Republic, we had an attorney general, but we had no Justice Department. And it was unclear. The Lincoln exactly. administration was Justice Department, right? Yeah, I mean, it was it was much later, and yeah. So you had the lead attorney of the United States government being the Attorney General, but it was kind of unclear. You know, is this is this really like other executive branch, like the Secretary of State and Secretary of Treasury, or or is this person somewhat different because they're the Attorney General of the United States? And I think that's important to remember that. The attorney general is a member of the cabinet. The attorney general is appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate, all that stuff. But the attorney general has two hats. There is the hat of policy, which is usually in line with the president's policies. And if not, then there's some ethical considerations and maybe resignations and all of that. But there's also the attorney general as trying to look objectively at the law. And that's why we've tried to set up safeguards and things so that the president can't manipulate justice. Um, that is where we're operating. And the attorney general is going to have to take all of that into account if and when he makes this ultimate decision on what to do with this information. Yeah. So Department of Justice not established until 1870. That was the uh, Ulysses S. Grant administration. But as I read Franklin Forrest's piece, I had memories and whiffs of the analysis of the Mueller report, something Mm -hmm. we talked about. And specifically, it was, I didn't disagree with any of the uh, facts put forward or the conclusions reached, but it seemed as if Ford's line of reasoning was to tell you all about the man of Merrick Garland, his orientation, his belief in process, but also his rectitude and his rightness on the issues and his prudence. And therefore, just as what was done with Mueller, therefore, a man of such prudence and rectitude would surely see this set of facts and indict and not opt to do the incorrect or cowardly thing. And I think where that analysis went wrong with Mueller was that the people who were issuing the analysis were so convinced of the facts that they couldn't conceive that a man of rectitude wouldn't be similarly convinced. And I wonder if something like that is going on in the analysis, or if you see something like that going on in the analysis of Garland. Yeah, I see a fundamental difference there, which is the the different roles of Robert Mueller as the special counsel in that case, and the attorney general in this case. So as special counsel, the, the way that it's currently constructed, Robert Mueller was duty bound to follow the law and the regulations of the Justice Department, including binding precedent as established by the Office of Legal Counsel. So when it came to his judgments about what had happened on issues like obstruction of justice, Mueller had to describe them in detail, but feeling that his hands were tied by the OLC opinion that a sitting president cannot be indicted, he simply had to lay out all the facts without stating whether he thought formally that a crime had been committed because the president did not have a chance in this process to defend himself in that claim, and then leave it out there for Congress to decide. Essentially, a message saying, Congress, you have everything you need here to impeach the president, and that is the path that must be taken because OLC has our hands tied. That was basically the Mueller dilemma. Um, Some people thought he should have basically ripped up OLC guidance and done it, 
But as a person who's a rule follower, th- those were the rules that he was operating under. The attorney general is in a different position. Um, the attorney general decides that policy. And we're not dealing with a sitting president anymore. You're dealing with a United States citizen. As far as I know, Donald J. Trump is still a citizen in good standing of the United States of America, who happens to be a former president. But there is very, very little that a former president is different than every other citizen. There are a few differences in law, like a former president has some benefits from the General Services Administration for a period of time and some secret service protection and some funding for a private office, things like that. Access to documents uh, that are held by the National Archives, not held by yourself in your closet, but access to documents held by the National Archives, things like that. But otherwise, a former president is just like you and me, a citizen of the United States, and there is no OLC guidance on what you can and can't do with a former president. That makes the Mueller-Garland analogy a lot trickier than just weighing them on, on the same scales. Uh, the situation is fundamentally different. Right. So a couple. I'll get to a couple of the big questions, but I want to ask you, this might be a side note, but to me it wasn't. And I wanted to ask you this because I know that you're a CIA officer and you're, uh, you were in the security community. There was... Uh, a moment, and this is perhaps the most famous testimony, Cassidy Hutchinson talking about what she heard, and it was hearsay, but you know, arguably admissible, admissible hearsay. Certainly for this proceeding, it was um, about Donald Trump wanting to grab the wheel of the beast or some limousine and drive it to the Capitol. And supposedly, and this was touted by Republicans who weren't on the committee, which is say not Kinzinger or Cheney, supposedly the Secret Service agents were going to come forward and rebut this and nothing ever happened. And it kind of fizzled, at least the promise, not the allegation, but the promise that this would be rebutted. Is there something about something either specific in law or by nature of the department that would preclude a Secret Service agent from going forward and correcting the record if they could? No, this, the Secret Service at its most basic level uh, does not have any protection from testifying in a criminal proceeding or even a civil proceeding at some level. Um, and listen, Tony Ornato, who was the uh, Secret Service officer who's most in question here, did contribute to the January 6th investigation. I believe he was interviewed in both January and March. Uh, news reports indicate he is being invited back because he he had said that he would correct the record and come back and, and never did. So they may be formally inviting him to come back and say it under oath instead of saying it just out in, in public. But the issue for the Secret Service is that in upholding their oath, uh, they are to provide protection to the president. And in order to do so, it is important that they keep secret the political conversations the president has, the personal conversations the president has, unless they are a direct violation of law. You, You want the Secret Service to be close enough to the president to get in the way of threats. In order for that to work, you need to have the president trusting the Secret Service agents aren't going to turn around and tell political opponents what they're whispering in terms of political strategy and things like that. On the other hand, the oath of the Secret Service is to the U.S. Constitution, not to the person of the president. Those two are in alignment to the extent that you're protecting the president and he's not doing anything that is violating the Constitution or the laws of the United States. But once it gets to questions about Was the president doing something like inciting a seditious conspiracy? 
then Secret Service officers are duty-bound to testify in cases where it's relevant to that. Now, I would say that way too much attention was paid to whether Donald Trump was lurching forward to grab the wheel of the car and what did he do? Did he physically lay a hand on a security uh, Secret Service officer and push him out of the way? That was dramatic, but that's not the important part. The important part for Tony Ornato and others to testify to is what were the president's actual movements and intentions of movements? What was he ordering them to do? And what did he say about why? That gets to issues that relate to constitutional duty. I don't really care if he was holding the steering wheel or not. I want to know whether he said, damn it, I've got to get back there to support this crowd in what they're doing at the time that they were breaking windows, assaulting police officers, and disrupting the constitutional order of the United States. How much of the work of the committee will be thwarted if Republicans take the House? Well, the committee is technically over at the end of this Congress. So as soon as uh, the new members are sworn in, this committee goes away. Now, in theory, it could be reinstated, but, but it's basically over. So the work of the committee is largely done. Now, they have hinted and perhaps even stated explicitly that they will have a final report in December. Um, I suspect it won't be before that, and I it can't be much later than that. But at some point in December, there will be some kind of a written product that brings together these threads that have been shown in the hearings. That, in a sense, is, you use the Mueller analogy, um, that is the Mueller report of this committee. It's going to pull those elements together. The difference, of course, is the Mueller report plopped all at once, and the attorney general characterized it. Uh, as as Bob Mueller came out and said, he mischaracterized it when he announced it. Um, that's not happening here. We already know what the committee has shown in the hearings. So I don't think it will be a, a jaw-dropping revelation when the final report comes out. But there probably will be some things in there that are slightly different or phrased in a way that does get some attention. And that probably will be coming in December. Well, what about the subpoena of Donald Trump? Yeah, this is the big question, right? I mean, Will the president or will any defense, uh, any any lawyers that are willing to work with the former president, um, will will they allow him to sit and take questions under oath? The conventional wisdom is is no. He has avoided that in, in every possible case, in every possible jurisdiction up to this point. So will it work? Probably not. But it is interesting at a minimum and perhaps compelling that you have a former president who is unwilling to answer questions under oath. Because you have former presidents who did that. We can just go back to Gerald Ford, who in 1974 uh, appeared before the Judiciary Committee. And he was the sitting president, not a former president. While he was president, he sat before the Judiciary Committee and asked questions about the pardon of Richard Nixon to try to answer questions and point out, no, this was not a corrupt act. There was no quid pro quo that I would pardon him if he left office and I would become president. He was willing to do that. And most of us weren't alive or aware at that time, but that was a pretty tense time in America. People were wondering, this had never happened before. A president had not resigned. Do we have any faith that this president is, is okay to be in office or was this some kind of a corrupt bargain? If Gerald Ford was willing to do that as president and mm -hmm. a former president is not willing to follow the subpoena and do this now, um, that is interesting. Uh, and I think also compelling because it tells us something about the character of the person and, and his willingness to talk. 
Now, of course, defendants and clients always try not to testify under oath. Hillary Clinton mm -hmm. did not testify under oath in that's right. Comey's investigations into her email. And that was, if you were her lawyer, you would say, well, that is the outcome that we advocated for. That is right. And, and in the, the former president's case, um, he has not stated definitively that I've seen yet whether he will agree to the subpoena uh, to testify or not. But he did issue a, a very long and uh, helpful written response, um, a letter to Chairman Benny Thompson after the subpoena was issued. And it has several pages of things that are not really responsive to, to the issues the committee was investigating, but a, a diatribe against what he says, the presidential election was rigged and stolen. What struck me about it is, is after that banner headline of all caps that he wrote, the first sentence itself is is a run-on of almost 100 words. It's, it's literally, the first sentence is literally more than a third the length of the Gettysburg Address. And, and I would argue, <laughs> not, not quite as poetic and, and meaningful. For, no ma for with malice history. towards all and charity towards none. Yeah, this one. <laughs> it's, um, it, it's quite a statement. And to the extent that the former president does not agree to the subpoena, then these words for now serve as his response to the subpoena. And the most compelling thing in there, Mike, is that he talks about how American citizens, including almost the entire Republican Party, feel that the election was rigged. And then he complains that his uh, crowds that he spoke with on January 6th were some of the largest he's ever spoken to before, a wide swath of people extending across the mall. So his two arguments are that People feel that something wasn't right here and that he had a really big crowd. Uh, to me, that tells us most of what we need to know in response to the subpoena. David Priest, I want to acknowledge two things. One is I want to acknowledge that it was in Lincoln's second inaugural that he said malice towards none and charity towards all. But I just wanted to make the Lincoln reference. It was hard not to. And the second thing I want to acknowledge is that you are a sublime guest and I'd like to thank you. It was a pleasure to be with you again. I wish we had uh, more definitive answers on some of these things, but we, we will find out more in the coming months, I'm sure. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. When I was a young man of 10 or 11, I think my favorite television program 
was William F. Buckley's firing line. My father brought me to it. He was a fan of Buckley. I don't think he subscribed to a lot of his politics, but what a way with words he had. And also, when he ran for mayor, he once quipped, what will be your first task if elected? And he said, to demand a recount that won my father over. So this show, especially if you're 10-year-old, was was crazy. This man steeped in erudition, talking to guests. His head would lilt at an angle. The show would begin with 13 people in his studio audience. And I didn't even know what I was watching, but I think I sensed that I was watching something special. And then when Robin Williams did his impression of William F. Buckley, I knew that to be the case. I once got to interview William F. Buckley. I was going to say before he died, but if uh, William F. Buckley were here, he would say something like, Oh, that would be uh, certainly very funny if the obvious was true. Joining me now is Heather Hendershot. She has written a book called Open to Debate, How William F. Buckley Put Liberal America on the Firing Line. Hello, Heather. Hello, Mike. Have you watched, well, before we before I ask this question, how many episodes or hours of Firing Line were there? Holy smokes. Uh, almost 1,500 episodes. And uh, it's hard to translate that into hours. Um, most of them were an hour, and then they switched to a half-hour format in the 80s. Uh, it ran from 1966 to 1999. And then throughout the 90s, they did these two-hour just epic debates with you know Henry Kissinger. And I have watched hundreds of hours of the show. And there are also transcripts available. So sometimes when a show wasn't available, I would read the transcript. It's better to watch, though, because you really get a sense of the the fashions and the personalities and the hairdos. And it's just a lot oh, more fun the that hairdos. way. Would you say you have either watched or read most Firing Line? I definitely would, yes. Wow. So now that Buckley no longer w- walks the earth, perhaps you have imbibed more Firing Line than anyone else. I'm not sure, though. I don't know if there's a a medal or a award for that. But yes, I've probably seen more firing line than almost any living person right now. Yeah. What compelled you to do so? I've been researching the book since 2011, interviewing and so on. But I would say that a new urgency arose, you know, a year and a half ago uh, as the political scene shifted and got more and more surreal and strange things were happening. And uh, debate was becoming discussion. Political discussion was becoming so uh, uncivil and 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 uh, off the rails in so many ways. And so I felt the need for this kind of book that celebrates civil political exchange but between people who really disagree, I felt like it was a good time for that. Um, the other reason was that I had written a book uh, that came out in 2011 called What's Fair on the Air? Cold War Right-Wing Broadcasting in the Public Interest. And that was about the extremist who emerged after Barry Goldwater was defeated in 1964 running for president. And everyone thought conservatism is dead forever. We're going to li- reign supreme in liberalism in America and so on. And But a conservative movement arose from these sort of ashes of the defeat of, of Goldwater. And Buckley was on the kind of legit side of that. Uh, But on the other side, there were a lot of extremists who were on radio and TV spreading anti-civil rights, uh, racist messages, very paranoid, conspiratorial. They're saying water fluoridation was a communist conspiracy. And Buckley uh, helped to push those people out of the conservative movement and forge a more legitimate uh, image for conservatism and a kind of sophisticated image, not a crazy kooky image that was dominant uh, in the 60s. To his great credit, he purge his brand of conservatism from the John Birch Society and from those elements. And it was not only the morally right move, but it was also the smart move. It would seem Absolutely. at the time. It was strategic. It was morally right. It was strategically very smart. And he had been, a, so he was basically a bit player in that book that I wrote. And then I thought, this guy is fascinating. And I started to watch the show and I had been watching TV, local TV from Dallas, Texas and radio 
uh, listening to radio from the deep south from you know the 60s and it was so harmful you know it was so negative and dark and just terrible and then i watched buckley and i thought my god this show is making me smarter and is improving me you know it's even though i disagree with buckley about a lot of points and i myself am a liberal i'm watching the show thinking i am learning so much this is such smart tv and so i really wanted to give over uh, much time to you know studying it and learning more about it and that's how the book came about did you find that Buckley was as uh, harsh or thorough uh, a questioner, an interlocutor with guests whose ideas he agreed with as with guests whose ideas he disagreed with? There's no denying that in some, especially in some of the late shows, uh, you know, in the 90s, that sometimes it was a sort of a love fest of, oh, we all agree about everything. And, and there are moments in the 80s where you feel like he's kind of running victory laps because, you know, Reagan's been elected and we, we've won and so on. Uh, but generally, one thing that was quite interesting was how he would push back with conservative guests if he disagreed with them. There's a wonderful moment in the first appearance of Margaret Thatcher on the show <laughs> where Jeff Greenfield is one of the questioners at the end. And uh, he, as a young man and before he went on to his big news career and so on, and he says, you know, in, in America, conservative women succeed more in politics uh, than, than liberal women. And do you think that that gave you an edge in, in the UK? Do you think that's a, a factor? Um, and she responded that, you know, gender really just wasn't an issue in the UK in politics, that, you know, we just judged the person on their merits and, you know, that, that was it. And Buckley was like, oh, that's nonsense. <laughs> you know, <laughs> how you can't say that there's no basically no, there's no sexism in British politics. And he really pushed back. I found from watching the show, and this is borne out in the book, that when a conservative whose ideas he agreed with was just a poor arguer, he would sometimes give mm -hmm. that conservative much harder time. And there was an episode I watched before I I watched a few months ago before I uh, even knew your book existed. Hitchens, Christopher Hitchens was on, and R. Emmett Tyrell, and you could tell Buckley mm -hmm. just loved Hitchens. How could you not? And hated the poor argumentation of Tyrell. Exactly. Tyrell is arguing poorly and he's saying things that are uh, ridiculous. They're talking about a book that Tyrell has, has written called Is There a Liberal Crack Up? And uh, in the book, Tyrell is attacking various liberals and very uh, in, in an uncouth manner, you know, and Hitchens says, you know, this is you're insulting people. You're insulting feminists and saying they're ugly and this kind of stuff. And that's just not how you should talk. And Buckley found that very appealing, like Hitchens was calling for a more civil debate. And uh and Ty Tyrell just gets left behind in the discussion because Hitchens is so much more articulate and so much more engaging with Buckley. And at one point, Tyrell is sort of floundering and he goes, Billingsgate is something to which I will not stoop. <laughs> <laughs> and he's trying to sound cool, like by saying Billingsgate. And they're just like, oh, come on, guy, you cannot keep up with our vocabulary. Yeah. I, so that's a, that's a really wonderful one. I remember watching it in Hitchens. I forgot specifically what it was, but he dropped a pretty deep cut from Shakespeare, and I looked it up, and stuff like this would just happen all the time on Fire and mm -hmm. Line. You got mm -hmm. smarter. Yeah, it's but great. But I, I wonder at the time, you know, without the internet to track these things down, how did it play? How did it play on public television and among viewers who probably weren't used to much like this? Well, it found its niche, you know, at a moment where it was the mass media environment, CBS, ABC, NBC, and PBS, you know, and we didn't have this kind of niche stuff like we have today where there's a channel for gardening and a channel for pets and a channel for, you know, a home improvement and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Somehow it found its niche of people who wanted to see smart political 
argumentation and and from left, right and center. I mean, if, if you were a leftist, you were excited to see black power folks or feminists on the show, civil rights activists. And if you were on the right, you were pleased to see Buckley stand up for himself and, you know, voice the conservative opinion. So it did find a small audience. Uh, Buckley always said uh, with some pride that from the beginning, his ratings were Exiguous means scanty or meager. I had to look that up myself. Uh, You know, he had low numbers and he felt like, well, that's okay. You know, a lot of people don't want to hear intellectual discussion. It's at a moment when Gunsmoke and and, uh, Green Acres, you know, those were popular shows. Uh, They were pretty broad. And he understood that he would have a smaller audience. And, you know, frankly, it was never a profitable show. And he felt that that was okay. There are some endeavors that you do just because they're they're the right thing to do and not because they're profitable. So he was a free market capitalist and he had a, a lot of money and he had a lot of best-selling books and so on. But Firing Line and his Journal of Opinion, National Review, were not big profit makers. I mean, they were not profitable. Um, they were, you know, small kind of endeavors in certain ways with a, with ultimately a big impact. I sometimes call Firing Line a sort of gateway drug to conservatism where Conservatives would watch it, uh, who were sort of forming their identity, and then they would go on to National Review and learn more about it. Last year, a film came out, Best of Enemies, about the uh, debates between Buckley and Gore Vidal. And these were not firing line debates. These were ABC News debates. And uh, there's a famous, infamous episode where Buckley calls Vidal a queer I assume that to the point of the American democracy, yeah. and some is you can express to any point of view you want Shut up a minute. No, I won't. And some people were pro Nazi, and the answer is that they were they were well treated by people who ostracized them. And I'm for ostracizing people who egg on other people to shoot American Marines and American soldiers. As I know you don't as care. As far as I'm concerned, the only sort of pro or crypto Nazi yeah. I can think of is yourself. Failing that, let's, I would let's, only let's say that we names. can't have now listen, you the right of assembly. Stop calling me a crypto Nazi. Let's, let's stop calling names you in your goddamn face, and you'll stay plastered. Do you think that was his low point in this form? That is such a, that movie Best of Enemies is so good. And I, I really recommend it highly to everyone I talk to about this. Vidal, the, the film shows how Vidal really did his homework and really pushed, pushed and prodded at Buckley until he sort of broke him insofar as Buckley lost his cool and insulted him. And he was so upset with himself that he had used curse words on television, insulted someone. And it was something that sort of... Uh, uh, haunted him in certain ways. If it was a low point, as it were, um, he recognized that and he, you know, he felt wrong about it. And it's very different from today where people insult each other all the time on TV and have feuds and so on and, you know, don't express sort of remorse about it. Does a show like Firing Line not exist today because, A, there's just not the climate for an hour-long show, B, the audience can't be expected to have that attention span, or C, there's no William F. Buckley? Uh, all of the above. <laughs> uh, but do you really you know, think it, that if there was someone yeah. so singular and so talented yeah. and somehow he convinced, you know, PBS or some, you know, there are mm-hmm. 400 networks, some networks. I you, know. YouTube. So, to, to give him a so shot. There's so much TV yeah. out there. I yeah. know. And yeah. part of the issue is Buckley was, he was very adamant that he was not an interviewer. He was a conversationalist. He wouldn't say, do the sort of Q&A that the interviewer does. He wanted to have an open conversation. And that's harder to find on TV today. You know, even the more intelligent discussions, it's one, you know, the newscaster is the objective person just asking the straight up questions and then the answer, you know, responds. And so, so uh, we don't have... Um, like really good models for this out there. But I'd like to think that that there is a place for it if you could find the right host. Have you seen anyone out there in the media who could maybe be the host of such a show? 
I have not. I will say that part of what made him great was his sense of humor. And it was wry and subtle, and it wasn't uh, knee-slapping, funny kind of stuff. But he always had a sense of humor about politics. And I think some of the best political discussion has a humorous edge, certainly like what Colbert used to do on his show on the Colbert Report. There were moments where I thought that was kind of Buckley-esque. And of course, it was very different. It was the way it was formatted and the little bits and pieces, the way it's chopped into bits. But, you know, you have an author on the show and just sit down and talk about their, their ideas and, and bring a sense of humor to it. And there was an openness there. And also on, uh, on John Stewart, when he was on um, the Daily Show, uh, you know, he would have interviews that would run long and they would run the extended version uh, on the website. And these were not hour-long discussions, but something about the openness and the sense of humor was sort of there. So I, I, I can't see either of them as doing like the new firing line, but it's nice to see models out there that evoke that kind of generosity of spirit. So you're a very erudite person. You are a self-described liberal, and there you are watching 1,500 episodes, maybe more <laughs> if you had the hours. Did fi- did any argument he made change your mind on anything? Hmm. Well, I would say that I was uh, very open. I learned a lot more about conservatism, and I have a lot more respect for certain aspects of the position than I did before. But I I do think it does say something that this is a show about debate and about politics, and this is the stalwart of conservatism, and still, he couldn't change your mind. And there's no one better, uh, both stylistically (laughs) and marshalling the facts. If anyone could change your mind, it would be him, and you, you came to really like him and like spending time with him, but he still couldn't change your mind. It says something about- if minds can ever be changed. Yeah, but you know, he made me more open to talking to people on the other side of the aisle. And that's that's mind-changing. This is a moment where we need to be talking to people we disagree with. Right. What do you think Buckley would have thought of uh, the Donald Trump phenomenon? Oh, boy. Well, we don't have to guess too much in that he wrote an article in Cigar Aficionado magazine in 2009 in which he addressed, uh, he discussed Donald Trump and also Jesse the Body Ventura, who was at that point running for governor of Minnesota. And uh, he said they that Trump was a demagogue and a narcissist. So I think he would uh, be appalled by uh, Trump in every way and, and much in the way that National Review uh, was appalled. And, you know, you may have seen the cover of National Review, you know, they, they post Trump and there's a, a there's Yosemite Sam right on the cover as a caricature of like Donald Trump with guns blazing. He, I think he would have been proud of the journal taking that perspective. Heather Hendershot is the author of Open to Debate, How William F. Buckley Put Liberal America on the Firing Line. She's a professor of film and media at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. You know it as MIT. Thank you so much, Heather. (laughs) Great. Thank you, Mike. And that's it for this, the Saturday show. It's not it for gists or not even mad. Right here in the show notes, should you wish to, you could click on that link and subscribe to the actual feed of Not Even Mad. That is extremely helpful. It will be helpful to you. It will guide you in the right direction politically and in terms of entertainment and in terms of opening your horizons. Horizons being, you know, bounded only by one's imagination. I think William F. Buckley said that, although he said it in a very patrician drawl. The Saturday Show, all of the gists are produced by Corey War as the assistant producer and Joel Patterson as the senior producer. I shall talk to you on Monday.